This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Global Climate and Health Alliance, the David Pakman Show, the Young Turks, the Tom Hartman Program, Moyers and Company, Counterspin, the Majority Report, the Green News Report, and activism from Best of the Left. For many, the words climate change conjure images of polar bears and melting ice caps. But one of the biggest impacts is much closer to home. The threat to our health. The Lancet, one of the world's most influential medical journals, has called climate change the biggest global health threat of the 21st century. The latest report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change outlines the impact on human health and well-being. Using the best science available, now more certain than ever, it details the risks and vulnerabilities each country faces. The report describes a world where an additional 25 million children are undernourished, where dangerous infectious diseases like malaria spread to new shores, where natural disasters like Typhoon Haiyan, Hurricane Katrina, floods in the UK and Europe, and bushfires in Australia become more severe, affecting many more people. These pressures are likely to exacerbate poverty, civil unrest, and conflict around the world. But the story doesn't have to end that way. The irony is that while we're on a path that is very dangerous, there is another path that is not only safe, but it's going to lead to higher quality of life, uh, better services, uh, safer food supply, more resilience, nicer uh, cities. We have to change from the old fossil fuel economy and the old way of doing things to smart cities, smart transport, moving to low carbon energy systems. We can cut rates of respiratory and heart diseases like asthma and heart attack if we use cleaner energy and reduce air pollution. We can tackle obesity and prevent road deaths by building sustainable cities and green spaces that encourage walking and cycling. We can improve public health and reduce the cost of medical care by creating low-carbon, climate-resilient health systems. And we can create green growth and jobs that tackle poverty and reduce vulnerability to climate change. To make this a reality, we need to build partnerships for sustainable development and health across all sectors. Climate change is one of the greatest health threats we face, but together we can turn it into one of the greatest opportunities. To find out more, visit climateandhealthalliance.org.
let's talk a little bit about the costs of moving towards renewable energy. Big focus on, on fiscal conservatism today, Lewis. This could almost be a right-wing show if it weren't for the fact that we're actually logically connecting the ways in which we spend and save money to the consequences that would follow. That's not often something you get on right-wing media. A recent Union of Concerned Scientists study found that the United States could quadruple its renewable electricity from wind and solar in the next 15 years, reaching 23% by 2030. Well, we could do it, but of course that would be really, really expensive. Nobody could afford that, right? Well, not really. It turns out that by increasing our solar and wind energy as a percentage of total energy consumption for electricity to 23%, it would cost only... 18 cents per household per month. 18 cents, Lewis. And this does not take into consideration over the longer term the net benefit to our society, to our economy, to our planet of shifting towards renewable energy. It's such a no-brainer and we just can't seem to get the right on board. They say, oh no, we need private industry to do it, but at the same time, we shouldn't be providing private industry with the right incentives because it's going to hurt the fossil fuel companies. We have such a disgusting, I mean, it's so base and lowbrow what we're seeing in terms of the opposition to a real shift to renewable energy. And we could move to almost a quarter solar and wind for electricity for 18 cents per household per month. So over 15 years, that's $32. Um, that seems really low, but I guess it's low because our current percentage of, of renewable energy is so low, and we'd only be going up to about 23% countrywide. Right. Germany already gets 15% of its electricity from renewables. Uh, Spain at 19%. Denmark at 30%. The U.S. is at 3.6%. A recent study from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory shows that using technologies that are commercially available today, the U.S. could obtain 80% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2050. Forget about the fact that by 2050, we will have such drastically more efficient and advanced renewable energy technologies. It's When you think about it, Lewis, with today's technology, we could be getting 80% of our renewable, of our electricity from renewables. Imagine what we're going to see, forget about the next 36 years, just in the next six. In this country, we used to have something called yellow journalism, where uh, the press would aggressively attack uh, people that were in power, the government, etc. Sometimes over-aggressive. <laughs> Remember those days? Well, no one remembers those days, because we haven't had press like that in a long, long time. So now what we have is green journalism. You pay me, and I run the kind of article that you like. And oftentimes, unfortunately, Politico has been accused of doing this on many occasions. I don't know why I'm soft-pedaling it by saying accuse of it. They do it. Okay, so they have ads you can clearly see in their magazine and their papers and on their online publication. And then you will see positive stories about those in their morning rundown that Mike Allen sends out. Oh, look at this fascinating 
Good point being made by the Chamber of Commerce in their get-together today. Oh, look at that ad next to them, to that article, Chamber of Commerce. Funny how that works. Now, in this case, they've taken it to a whole new level. They just cut out the middleman. All right, so they have an article called, No, BP Didn't Ruin the Gulf. Well, that is some interesting investigative journalism. Let's take a look at who wrote that. Byline is Jeff Morrell who is the Senior Vice President of U.S. Communications and External Affairs for BP. Come on, dude. Come on. Have we no bounds of reason? Apparently we don't. They thought, probably rightfully so, they think, you know, nobody's paying attention, nobody's minding the house. It doesn't really matter. We're going to do this. A couple of progressives will point it out and go, tut, 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 and then we'll move on with our lives and continue to make money. Nobody in Washington is going to care. In fact, they're probably going to like it. They all get paid off by the same people we get paid off by. We're going to move on with our lives. There's a recent survey of, of people and the, and their perception of the press. <laughs> the conservatives have done such a great job at propaganda that most people thought Politico was liberal because, oh, it's media, so all the media is liberal. <laughs> Politico's liberal. <laughs> they literally have BP's lobbyists writing the articles for them about BP. Media, I pointed out that this appears to be the only article about the effects of the oil spill and BP many years later. So it's not like it's even balanced. This is their one piece of journalism on the oil spill. Brought to you by BP. Ugh. All right. So, well, let's be fair now. Let's go inside the article. Let's go to the first paragraph and see if it's balanced. Okay. Ongoing litigation, uh, Morell explains, and political wrangling over the Deepwater Horizon accident have generated considerable speculation about the size of the potential financial penalties facing BP, how much money will go to the Gulf Coast states, and how the states will spend the money. Lost in all that is a more fundamental question. What impact did this bill actually have on the Gulf Coast environment? So now that sets up two things. One, of course, is going to answer that question throughout the article by saying, no impact at all, minimal. Minimal. Don't worry about it. We're all, it's all good now. Spill. What spill? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I'll get to some of the details in a second on that issue. The second thing he's doing here is, everybody's talking about the money. God, you guys are so selfish. Now, BP, of course, spilled all that oil because they cared about the environment. Their, their real concern is the environment. Why? You guys are all worried about the money. BP doesn't care about money at all. Oh, my God. Blah, blah, blah about how much will BP pay. Ignore that. Well, wouldn't that be convenient for BP? All right, so tell us about the evidence, Jeff. Um, the evidence to date shows Gulf environment is rebounding and that most of the environmental impact was of short duration and a limited geographic area. Well, golly gee, it turns out BP, who did this spill, thinks that it's a limited geographical area, short duration, no big deal, don't worry about the move, money, let's move on. And then he goes on to give incredibly slanted, biased, obviously he's the BP spokesperson, point of view on how it's not that big a deal. And he talks about, oh, it just got many different factors for uh, why the ocean just kind of swallowed it up and look away now, right? So <laughs> I like one part of it, though, because he said, the first was the Gulf's inherent resilience as to why it's not a big deal anymore, okay? Natural oil seeps release up to the equivalent of nearly six Axon Valdez spills in the Gulf each year. And microbes in the Gulf have adapted over time to feast on oil. <laughs> you see, they did the Gulf a favor. They're feasting. All the microbes are like, oh, yummy for my tummy. Oh, thank you, BP. Really appreciate it. What a wonderful poo-poo platter you've given us here. 
Okay, well, I didn't know it was going to be this good for the Gulf. And I love the brazen like We could have spilled six times as much as the Exxon Valdez, and you still would have been fine. The Gulf would have enjoyed a nice buffet. <laughs> so we could have done worse. Oh, great. We really appreciate that. But look, BP writing this makes perfect sense. I don't begrudge Jeff Morrell doing that. That's his job. It's literally his job, right? Political running it. <laughs> journalism? Journalism. We're talking about journalism? Come on, man. Journalist goes out into the field To see what news the crop will yield today Hide in handy holds his pencil tight Will he write and to the left or to the On the line with us is Dr. Paul Christofferson, uh, MSC, Ph.D., University Senior Lecturer and Glaciologist with the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge. Uh, There's a link to the website over at TomHartman.com, but it is uh, spri.cam.ac.uk. And uh, Dr. Christofferson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for being with us. I understand that... um, the the Greenland ice. I mean, we. I think most people are familiar with the fact that the Arctic is losing ice like nobody's business. But Greenland uh, apparently is far more complex than we thought. That's right. Yes, we've we've um, carried out a new study uh, of the Greenland ice sheet, the land ice uh, that's situated and, and rimmed around mountains in Greenland, and we've studied the ice both with observations, and we're using these new observations to drive a new three-dimensional model of the flow of the ice itself. So the flow is the shearing of the ice that sort of makes sure that, that, that the snowfall that falls in the interior is transported to the coast, and that looks to be more sensitive than we thought in the past. Yeah. And uh, just, just to set this up for people who don't know why this is of consequence, when ice melts in the Arctic, it, it, the, the, the biggest consequence of it arguably is that the the uh, reflectivity of the Arctic has changed from being bright white to dark blue, and so it speeds up global warming. But when ice on land melts, it runs into the oceans off land and raises the sea level. Do I have that right? That's right. There is, um, there's, there's two sources uh, for sea level rise that we can really pin to the Greenland ice sheet. And, and the Greenland ice sheet is, is, is very large. We're talking, um, three million cubic kilometers of solid ice over an area of 1.7 million square kilometers. So that's many American states put together. I made a little cal- calculation before, and I think it's, it's sort of in, in, in the vicinity of taking Washington state, Oregon, California, and Texas together. So that's, that's wow. the size of, of Greenland. Um, so, so what's pretty clear is, is that as climate warms, and it is warming, there's unrefutable evidence for that now, the green and ice sheet is melting faster. So we've had record extent of melts on the ice sheet. So that's simply the melt that takes place to with, with flow of water along the surface, and that's increasing year after year. What's less certain is how that melts 
is influencing the flow of this immense piece of ice, and that's what we think is most sensitive. So we've we've discovered that the presence of a really soft ground beneath this ice sheet is is making it more vulnerable to climate change than we thought in the past. In other words, Greenland is not just a, a pile of rocks. It's it's there's actually dirt down there, and that reacts differently to the ice above it. Yeah, that's right. The, 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 there's there is weak dirt uh, underneath the ice sheet that that absorbs the melt water that comes from the surface, and it's pretty clear that that's very large quantities of melt water. The, the water on the surface accumulates in these lakes on the surface that we call superglacial lakes, and we've been studying these lakes for a while, and they tend to almost all of them drain suddenly, disappear into the ice, and all that water gushes down to the underside of the ice where it flows into and, and makes this soup of mud and grit and dirt. And that that muddy environment is, is struggling to absorb all the water that, that's, that's, that's coming down there from the lakes itself. And, and that's where the sensitivity lies. So you have uh, sort of a supersaturated mud solution under high pressure behaving like some kind of plasma? Is that That's right, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, this is common. We, we've known that for a while in other places in Antarctica. It's, it's quite common because we've drilled down to the bottom of the Antarctic ice sheet, but there's not much evidence from Greenland so far. And we're finding similar muddy, weak environments. So, so it's the ice is flowing in many places a bit like a hovercraft over these weak, weak, soft, this very weak, soft ground. So what does that mean for people living in, for example, Washington, D.C., or New York City, or Boston, or Miami? What, what does that mean in terms of, you know, my lifetime, my children's lifetime? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. The green and ice sheet is melting on the surface, and we know that. We can see it. We can measure it from satellites. But fact is that that process in itself is actually there's a limit to how fast you can you can melt ice on the surface. What we don't know so much about is how fast we can make this ice flow. This is the joker in the game. Um, so and we've discovered that there's links and there's connections between the quantity of, of, of water on the surface and the speed at which the ice travels and is transported from the interior of the ice sheet out to the coast and ultimately as either water or icebergs into the sea. So this sort of what we call the dynamic contribution to sea level rise is very uncertain and, and it's been speculated in the last few years that that contribution might not be as important as we once thought. But our study of this weak soft ground is, is a different story. It's one that tells that that, that, that flow might actually in the, fu- in the future, when that soft ground is struggling to absorb and accommodate the water that flows into it, it will cause the ice to flow faster and it will transfer more water and more ice into the global ocean. And that could cause sea level rise at much higher rates than what we're experiencing today. Hmm. And, and within what kind of time frame? Well, that's of course difficult to 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 predict uh, with models. I, I mean, our, the model that we developed here, we are running it with very good observational data sets. So it's observational data sets for this weak soft ground. We've got observational evidence of the quantity of water on the surface. We now need to run this model with future climate scenarios. So this is a task that's yet to be done to make an actual quantitative prediction. Mm-hmm. But there's a study that came out. 
together with ours, and it's showing how fast ice rose in the past. And that's a study that points that in the past, when we had ice sheets of the same size as today, sea level rise could rise by 1.5 to 2 meters per century. So that's a lot. That's yeah. a much faster rate of sea level rise than what's predicted uh, with current models. And one reason is that current models are actually not capable of incorporating this dynamic effect, so the, the effect that we can associate with the flow of the ice. So what would you say to uh, politicians and um, hustlers here in the United States who suggest that uh, there's no scientific consensus on climate change, we can't pin this on the fossil fuel industry, just leave those, na- those nice Cook brothers alone and let them make their money, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, th- that there is no consensus is just simply not true anymore. That That's... That's just something that lobbyists or people with an agenda are saying. It, it's there is a very good consensus amongst uh, scientists, people uh, like me who spend that every hour of, of, of their working life trying to figure out what's going on. And it's and there's no studies that are that are bucking the trend. There might be one glacier in one region that's showing an anomalous trend, and that's of course important to be aware of. But the, the glaciers that are bucking the trend is less than one out of a hundred. We're seeing the Alps diminishing at a rapid speed here in Europe. I've talked to people up in Greenland, local hunters that are struggling to, to, to hunt under their traditions because the time at which they have the sea ice, the frozen ice on, on, on the surface of the fjords is, is very short now. Um, People who live in the Arctic environment are not questioning climate change. So, uh, so, and people who read scientific papers and they're not questioning climate change either. So, to the viewers out there, there is there is no debate in the scientific community. Debate is political. Squarespace is a wonderful online platform that lets anyone build professional websites and online portfolios. It's also a piece of technology that just got a giant update. So what does that mean? It's time to start trashing the old version. You know that Squarespace 6 that I've spent the last year singing the praises of? Well, that's now a worthless pile of garbage because Squarespace 7 is here and it's practically God's new gift to humanity. I mean, if you're using Squarespace 6, I pity you and I would quickly look away if you tried to make eye contact. But if you're using Squarespace 7, then I revere you as an exceptional human being and humbly request that you be the godparent of my unborn children. I mean, that's what Squarespace might want me to say if they were actually trying to sell you something new. As it is, Squarespace 7 is a free upgrade for their customers. Squarespace 6 was great. Squarespace 7 is greater at no additional cost. If you want to see what I mean, you can for free with a 14-day trial, no credit card necessary. Then when you're ready to make the move permanent, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT at checkout. That's L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase. And that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. It's the all-in-one platform. Makes it fast and easy to create. You can start with 20 highly
For a long time, many of us have felt like scientists are on one side, espousing one set of values, and Christians and or conservatives are on the other side. And so along comes this new issue of climate change, which in my opinion um, has enormous theological implications. It's entirely consistent with the Christian faith to love others and to love our neighbors. So along comes this issue of climate change, but who are the primary spokespeople? It's these pointy-headed scientists <laughs> who have been on the other side of the fence on many other issues regarding creation, evolution, the age of the universe, even other issues today like genetic modification and things like that. So it's no surprise that when you get a messenger who is not trusted, who you perceive as not sharing your values, that, you know, why would you believe them? Do you often get feedback? Uh, in person, I would say there's more positive feedback than negative. But in terms of not in person, internet, email, letters, things like that, I would say it's probably about 99% negative. But I get five to ten times more hate mail from Christians than I do from atheists, for example. Why? Well, caring about climate is entirely consistent with who we are as Christians. But over the last several decades, we have increasingly begun to confound our politics with our faith to the point where instead of our faith dictating our attitudes on po political and social issues, we are instead allowing our political party to dictate our attitude on issues that are clearly um, consistent with who we are. What does that tell you? Um, that this issue pushes a button. It is a giant red button as big as this table. And it really makes people mad because they feel like it threatens something that they hold dear. And that's because we've been told that you can't be a Christian or you can't be a conservative, or you can't be a person of faith, or even a person of integrity, and agree that climate is changing, that humans are responsible, and that there's something really important we need to do about it. Who's telling them that? Well, if you read the social science, which is honestly my favorite reading material these days, we have found out from social science that, number one, if you take conservative Protestants, and you ask them what they think about climate change, but you control for age, for conservatism, and for political party affiliation, then the bias drops out. That's what is accounting for conservative Protestants thinking climate change isn't real. It's our political affiliation. But here's the thing. In the majority of cases, if you really dig down to the bottom of people's objections to climate change, they're not based on the science. They're based on the solutions. People fundamentally object to the solutions to climate change because climate change is a tragedy of the commons. So by definition, one individual's actions will not be sufficient to address the problem. You have to act together. Together, it means government. People are fundamentally opposed to government solutions to a problem. And, but it's a lot easier to say it isn't a real problem than to say it is a real problem and it's a very serious problem, but we don't support any, any action to do anything about it. I believe, actually, that climate change is a casualty of much larger societal issues. Just to give you an example, going back even farther, when we talk about climate change, the words we hear are things like carbon tax and government legislation. If you go back in history, what was the whole American Revolution? What did the whole American Revolution come from? It came from tax and government tyranny and government imposing sanctions and taxes on people that they didn't think were fair. And so I think it's actually embedded in the American psyche to object to big government solutions that involve taxing people's rights to do or use whatever they want. You've been quoted saying you feel like the conservative community 
the evangelical community, and many other Christian communities have been lied to. By whom? So with climate change, we have people who we trust in our community. We have people who are Christians. We have people who call themselves Christians. We have conservative leaders who may not be Christian but are very respected within the community. And these are the people standing up telling us it's a hoax, it's not real, or even maybe it's real but it's not a big deal and we don't have to worry about it. Well, this is the puzzling thing. You know, why so many conservatives in leadership positions, Republicans I'm talking about, why do they dismiss the science? What do they have to gain except the satisfaction that they're limiting the growth of government? That's, oh, that's a great question. And honestly, um, trying to figure out that question is one of the main reasons why um, I am now in a department of political science. My background is originally in physics and then atmospheric science, and then just a couple of years ago, I actually moved departments for multiple reasons, as all of us do. But one of the reasons is because I feel like the science is there. Um, we have all the information we need to take precautionary steps on this issue. It's not a scientific issue. It's not a matter of one more report will do it. One more national climate assessment, that's what will solve the problem. One more new analogy, and people will get it. Information is not the answer. The answer has much more to do with who we are as humans and how we function politically. So why is it that two Christians walking down the same road of faith mm -hmm. suddenly turn in exactly the opposite directions of belief about this issue of global warming? I think that relates to the fact that we often look to leaders we trust and respect to tell us what to think about it. And especially in the more evangelical parts of the Christian community, we have a leadership vacuum. I mean, aside from Billy Graham, it's hard to name a conservative Christian leader who's been around for decades. People come and go. We don't have a Pope Francis. We don't have, you know, John Paul, who has written very extensively and eloquently on the environment. So in that leadership vacuum, especially in the more conservative parts of the church, our political leaders step in, people who share values with us. The media steps in, people who will say the things that we agree with in terms of, you know, abortion, gun control, immigration, right. things like that. So I think it's a matter of we are being told things by people who don't like the solutions to climate change and have decided that it's a lot better and it's a lot smarter to deny the reality of the problem than to acknowledge it exists but say you don't want to do anything about it. You said recently the evangelical world is the last significant holdout on the reality of this issue, this issue of man-made global warming. Mm -hmm. Do they have the muscle to prevent us from saving the planet? Goodness, I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm glad I don't, because what motivates me is hope. The hope that by just changing a few minds, by giving, and it's not, the responsibility is not mine to actually change the minds. I see my responsibility as giving people the information they need to make the right decision. All right, then give people some concrete, specific things they can do about it. Three things. The first thing we can do is prepare to adapt to what we can't avoid. We already have a great idea of what is happening in each part of the country. Are we getting more frequent heavy rainfall and flood events? Are we seeing rising sea level? Are we seeing stronger hurricanes? Are we seeing um, more heat waves? Look at the U.S. National Climate Assessment. Great resource online, written in very plain English, not for scientists, for other people. 
that tells us what's coming, and it just makes sense. It's like we've been driving a car all these years, looking backwards. We need to take our eyes off that rearview mirror and actually look down the road and say, in 10, 20, 30 years, how high will sea level have risen? Therefore, should I be building my house here? How warm or how wet or how dry will it be? Therefore, what types of crops should we be planting, if any? So that's the first thing, adaptation. The second thing we have to do is mitigation. Mitigation is reducing the amount of energy we're getting from carbon-based fuels. We can do that two ways. We can switch to alternative sources of energy or we can use less. So on an individual level, the number one thing I recommend is going online and figuring out what our personal carbon footprint is. The enormous balloon of carbon dioxide that we produce every year. And if it's a good carbon calculator, and there's many good ones, it'll give you a list of 10, 20, 30 things that you specifically could do, depending on how far you drive to work, how big your house is, what part of the country you live in, how much money you have, things like that. Number three is, we live in a democratic society. We need to tell our leaders that we care about this issue. Tell them, I'm a mom, and I care about it because of my kids. I'm a Christian, and I care about it because of my faith. I'm a conservative business person, and I care about it because I want a healthy economy. And the myth is that climate change and a healthy economy are opposed. Right. We have the ability, and I think we have the responsibility, to do that in the society that we live. Your parents were missionaries. Yes. Are you? I'm starting to think I might be. For? I mean, imagine a world where you know the highways are made out of solar panels that charge our cars as we drive where every house is just made out of shingles of solar panels with a little wind turbine in the corner, where we have no air pollution anymore, um, you know, killing children with asthma and people with respiratory disease. I mean, I know this sounds like utopia. Sounds to me like it could be a new gospel. It may be a gospel that builds on the resources that God has given us. We have more than enough abundant energy to power our society from wind, from solar, from tides. All of the things that we believe as Christians, God created and has given to us as a free gift. So I think that there is the ability to have a better future, one that is built on the goodness that God has given us here in this world. Let's talk a little bit about an unhinged climate denier named John Coleman. John Coleman founded the Weather Channel uh, back in the 1980s. He was forced out about a year after it went on the air. He's a total climate change denier, and much of the right-wing media really likes talking about how the Weather Channel founder doesn't believe in climate change. Unfortunately, he has no credentials whatsoever to speak of that should make us care what he thinks. He is not a meteorologist. He is not a climatologist, but the right Lewis seems to, I know they have a disdain in many cases for traditional college and university educations, they like the fact that he's the founder of the Weather Channel, and they say, hey, even he doesn't believe in what's going on, in spite of the fact that he has no educational basis on which to make those claims. 
Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, they're not looking at perhaps the business, uh, credentials and the, perhaps the video production credentials this guy has. They think just because it's a channel about weather <laughs> that he's an expert. But I mean, I guess that's not a crazy thing to assume, but let's, uh, let's let people know. He went on CNN and host Brian Stelter asked him to explain why 97% of scientists agree that humans are causing climate change. And Coleman said, well, the U.S. government only gives money to scientists who support the global warming hypothesis. And he said science is about facts, and if you get down to hard, cold facts, there's no question about it. Climate change is not happening. At one point, he turned to the camera and waved and said, Hello, climate change, uh, uh, global warming doesn't exist. There is no global warming. This just happened to coincide, Lewis, with a report from the Intergovernmental Planet, uh, Planet Panel on Climate Change. They put out something called the Synthesis Report, and it detailed the dangers of climate change, and hundreds of scientists spent five years preparing this report. And they say that we are facing irreversible impacts for people and ecosystems. That's what the reporting should be about. But hundreds of scientists researching something in a serious manner for five years obviously takes a backseat on corporate media to a guy who had a job once that involved the word weather saying, don't worry, this doesn't exist. If only those scientists uh, were making billions of dollars in profits every year, <laughs> uh, I think they'd have a bit more uh, influence. Yeah, unfortunately, if we figured, if we thought about where that money would be coming from, they might have uh, uh, other forces influencing them to say the same thing as John Coleman, which is, ladies and gentlemen, nothing to see here at all. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. On October 26th, ABC This Week correspondent Jonathan Carl had a friendly chat with George P. Bush who's currently running for Texas Land Commissioner, but maybe running for bigger things soon. But Carl did get him to talk about substance, the threat posed by climate change. Unfortunately, the setup from the ABC reporter was lacking. And he attempts to stake out a middle ground on climate change. Well, sort of. How big a threat is uh, climate change to the Texas coastline? The Texas coastline is impacted by, by rising sea levels. Uh, and again, the question is whether or not that's, that's man-made, and I'll leave that to the scientists. Carl followed up with this. But you don't doubt that human activity contributes to climate change? Well, we'll see in terms of the science, in terms of the, there's, there's a wide range that has been discussed. And again, I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but everywhere from you know, no impact at all to 100%. Now, if we're really trying to establish the middle ground on climate change, it's definitely not 
I'm not a scientist, but maybe humans have some impact on rising sea levels, but maybe they don't. Carl is framing a scientific question as a matter of political positioning. It may be true that Bush's evasive response is the middle compared to the full-on climate change denial you might hear from other Republican politicians. But that's a dangerously skewed way of looking at this issue. Climate change is rarely discussed on the Sunday talk shows. It'd be nice if, when they did discuss it, the conversation was less about political posturing and more about reality. Fed up with a lack of action by Florida lawmakers, the city of South Miami have, has passed a resolution calling for the state to be split in two, allowing for a South Florida and a North Florida so that the southern half of, the, of Florida can actually begin to implement policies to deal with the forthcoming climate change disaster they are facing. The resolution reads, South Florida's situation is very precarious and in need of immediate attention. The creation of the 51st state, South Florida, is a necessity for the very survival of the entire southern region of the current state of Florida. Resolution passed 3-2 in a city commission meeting. Of course, this is not binding. But it's just a basically a cry for help. Vice Mayor Walter Harris introduced the proposal and said, we have to be able to deal directly with this environmental concern and we can't really get it done in Tallahassee. I don't care what people think. It's not a matter of electing the right people. If approved, the state of South Florida would consist of 23 counties, many of which are as low as five feet above sea level. Dangerous scenario as sea levels are expected to rise three to six feet by the end of the century. And we've talked about uh, on this program, we had a uh, writer, I can't, his name escapes me for the moment, from Rolling Stone on, I don't know, several months ago. Maybe it was over a year ago. Jeff now. Goodell. Jeff Goodell. Goodbye, Miami. Talking about the unique problems that Miami in particular faces. They've brought in engineers from Amsterdam to see if their system of uh, dikes would help. And it won't. Miami and other areas in South Florida are basically built on limestone. It's incredibly porous, and the water just seeps up from the ground. The resolution reads, South Florida has very porous rock, and as the sea level rises, the pressure will cause water to rise up through the ground and flood the inland areas. Many of the issues facing South Florida are not political, but are now significant safety issues. Presently, in order to address the concerns of South Florida, it's necessary to travel to Tallahassee, North Florida. Often, South Florida issues do not receive the support of Tallahassee. This is despite the fact... 
that South Florida generates more than almost 70% of the state's revenue and contains almost 70% of the state's population. And we sing and we drown and what is lost can never be found Will these arms dead swim until the lungs pulled in Panic was lost in a deep understanding that you will see what is wrong with everything what is wrong with you and me they make all the right reasons to fuck it up you're gonna fuck it up As predicted, the fossil fuel industry was the big winner of the 2014 midterm elections, not boding well for environmental protection. Big money groups propelled the Republican Party to big wins across the country. These fossil fuel companies spent big on this election um, because they're looking for something in return. That was reporter Lee Fong on Democracy Now! this week. Environmental organizations succeeded in making global warming a campaign issue, spending a record $85 million on the midterms, but the Koch brothers' web of front groups alone spent nearly $300 million. What will be the environmental impact of Republicans controlling the Senate? Well, remember, the Republicans already had control of the Congress through obstruction in the minority. This just made it official. And the Climate Change Denier Caucus ruling in the Senate will be led by Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma. The notion that man-made gases cause global warming is probably the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. That guy? That guy is going to be in charge of the U.S. Senate Environment Committee? Yeah, and he's promised to launch investigations into the EPA, government scientists, federally funded science research, and environmental organizations like the Sierra Club and NRDC. I'll be replacing Barbara Boxer as chairman of the, of the uh, uh, Environment and Public Works Committee so we can go back and start using CRAs, that's Congressional Review Act, to repeal or to stop some of the onerous regulations that are taking place. Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, who will be the presumed new Senate Majority Leader. Mitch McConnell, the king of Kentucky coal? <laughs> yeah, he's promised to roll back landmark environment and public health achievements of the Obama administration. He's pledged to block the EPA's historic new emissions standards for power plants, even though a strong majority of Americans want the government to act on global warming. Top on their list is sending President Obama a bill to authorize the controversial Keystone XL pipeline, him to veto it, perhaps by attaching it to a must-pass spending authorization bill. And yet, you know what's interesting? They didn't even talk about the Keystone XL pipeline during the campaign, it seems to me. That did not even come up as an issue. I guess you're just going to presume... That's the mandate the American people have now given them? Oh, they're talking mandate left and right and center all over the place. Whether they have one or not. Exactly. But some good news. Remember the tiny town of Richmond, California, near San Francisco, where a Chevron refinery blew up and caught fire in 2012, sending 15,000 people to the hospital? I do. And if you didn't like the time in 2012 when it caught fire and blew up, there was also the time it caught fire and blew up in 1999. And if you didn't like the time in 1999 when it caught fire and blew up, there was also the time in 1989 when it caught fire and blew up. That Chevron refinery in Richmond, California, has been kind of a nightmare. So the people of Richmond, California had had enough. 
Chevron was worried, so Chevron spent $3 million to elect its preferred candidates to the city government. The opposition only had about 40,000, but Richmond voters rejected Chevron and elected the anti-Chevron city council and mayor. So Chevron spent $3 million, and the mayor and city council that spent $40,000 beat them on every front. That's right. Well done, Richmond, California. More good news. In Alaska, voters approved a ballot measure to restrict large mines, which is a direct punch in the face to the controversial proposed pebble mine. In Florida, voters approved a massive conservation measure. In California, they passed funding for new water infrastructure. And voters approved local fracking bans in a handful of towns across the country, most prominently in Denton, Texas, heart of the fracking industry. But, of course, the industry's already filed suit to stop those measures. See, it's not all bad news. Ain't that good news? Man, ain't that news? Ain't that news? Ain't that good news? Man, I know that's good news. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. You've reached today's activism segment. Now that you're informed and angry, here's an update to remind you why you should still be angry about a topic that just won't go away. Today's update... Keystone XL under congressional climate deniers. The more we learn about last week's newly elected legislators, the worse things look for liberals. If you're in the camp that sees the president as a moderate at best, a Republican-run Congress has serious implications. And the most immediate potential problem is a potential approval of Keystone XL. While the State Department has issued a report outlining a conservative but definitive estimate of the damage Keystone would do to our air, water, and food supplies, the president hasn't made his position clear. At times making statements that made approval seem imminent, Obama has repeatedly postponed his decision, leaving room for environmentalists to remain hopeful. But now Republicans legitimately control Congress, not just with their world-class obstructionism. They're in charge of introducing legislation as well as passing it, and they do this kind of work quickly when they don't have to reach across the aisle for cooperation. This fossil fuel-backed GOP walks in lockstep over issues like Keystone. Seasoned climate reporter Kate Shepard counts a solid 61 Senate votes in favor of a measure to force Keystone's approval. That's a filibuster-proof majority. RNC Chairman Reince Priebus declared on election morning that passing a Keystone approval bill will be second on the Republicans' agenda right behind passing a budget. The bill pushing the president to approve the project is likely already being written. So right now, stop what you're doing. Go to the National Resource Defense Council's website, savebiogems.org, and 
signed the letter to the president with the subject line, the Keystone XL is not in our national interest. Then use contactingthecongress.org to find and write, call, and tweet your new and old representatives, encouraging them to oppose legislation which would approve Keystone. Also, check out the film Above All Else, a documentary that premiered at South by Southwest this year. I saw the film myself when a special screening came to Washington, D.C. This film is an up-close profile of the landowners and activists in East Texas who risked their personal safety to stop Keystone from tearing up their land. Personal stories are often the most compelling way to break through the empathy deficit, so sharing visual depictions like Above All Else can help people who think Keystone is just a political, both-sides-arguing type issue to to connect with the real impact of the pipeline and the links some very brave people are going to to stop it. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If the planet, food, and breathable air matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the expected Keystone-approving legislation via social media so that others in your network can join the opposition. And actually, I would say that probably the main thing that's going on and that will happen over the next who knows how many months is that the Saudis decided enough already of this American frackers getting in on the cheap oil business or on the expensive, you know, $100 barrel oil. oil. Um, Fracking is a very expensive process. This was the point that Dick Cheney made back when he made that famous statement, you know, Rex got 10% of the world's oil, very significant oil reserves, second, second only to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Dick Cheney said that back in 2001. And he was right. And the, you have to understand these, the, these different kinds of oil. So you've got, in Iraq, it was what's called virgin oil. And in other words, the oil wells had never been drilled into. They'd only been discovered by, you know, seismic measurement and whatnot. And when you drill into wells like this, you get the Jed Clampett effect. You get gushers. The wet, the oil is under pressure. It comes up out of the, out of the, out of the ground through the oil wells without any effort. And so that oil costs you maybe five or ten dollars a barrel to produce. So when you sell that oil for $100 a barrel, it's mind-bogglingly profitable. Now, Saudi oil, their wells are a little less than half drained. So they're having to <laughs> suck on the straw, right? Which means that they've got to suck on the straw with giant electric pumps or diesel-fuel-driven pumps that are pumping this stuff out. So Saudi oil costs 15 20 25 30 in some cases as much as 40 or $50 a barrel to extract. But at $100 a barrel, they can make money. Even at $70 a barrel, they can make money. 
And then you look at fracking. Fracking can cost $80 a barrel. Fracking is very expensive. But when oil is $100 a barrel, hey, 20 bucks a barrel, let's, we'll pull out a million barrels, we'll make some money. So the Saudis looked at this and they said, you know, the, the, there's, the world is awash in oil right now because the United States, they're fracking like crazy. The United States is now the second largest oil exporter on the planet. Fixed to be, fixed to be number one, and, and we're not importing the kind of Saudi oil we used to. So they said, screw that, we're going to dump all this oil onto the markets and drive the price down. And they drove the price down to like 70 bucks. Their goal is to put American frackers out of business, or at least cause them to at least slow down the momentum, which they've accomplished. Fracking operations around the United States right now are eh, kind of teetering. Now, there are some that are discovering, you know, roughly the equivalent of virgin crude. We're fracking it out like the Bakken oil shale field in North Dakota. Uh, we're, we're fracking it out. It's still only costing $20, $30 a barrel, and they can pump lots and lots of that. So anyhow, that's going on, and what that's doing, in addition to, you know, I mean, the Saudis are doing this. They don't, they don't care about the U.S. domestic economy. They care about competition, right? But by doing this, by driving the price of oil down to $70 a barrel, they're driving the price of gasoline down below $3 a gallon, which means that for working people in the United States who are the real job creators, the bottom half of the job market, People making less than $25,000 a year. They are the job creators because they spend the money that creates what's called aggregate demand. They, they spend the money that creates demand in the economy, and that's 70% of our economy is, you know, consumers buying things. And now they've got an extra $30 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month, depending on how much they spend on gasoline. And so the Saudis driving down the price of oil stimulates the economy. Now, you can look at this all the way back to the 60s. Look at every, you know, when the, it, Jimmy Carter inherited this inflation, it was the consequence of the economy being whacked. What whacked the economy? The Arab oil embargo. When the price of oil goes up, the economy goes in the tank. When the price of oil goes down, the economy booms. Why? Because gasoline is cheaper and average consumers have a little extra money in their pocket. And they'll take that money to the store and buy something that they wouldn't have otherwise bought. Because at the bottom half of the labor market, by and large, people don't take extra money and save it. Unlike the Koch brothers or, but you know, anybody who's making over a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and not living beyond their means, if they make extra money, they save it. Which doesn't help the economy at all. At all. So, number one, that's happening with the economy. And, and that's why, in my opinion. Number two, we'll see. You know, it's just a, a bunch of things here I wanted to share with you. We'll we'll see where this where this uh, this election goes. The senator elect from Oklahoma, the old senator from Oklahoma, the existing senator, who was not up for re-election, James Inhofe. He's going to become. He he's the guy who wrote the book on the hoax of climate change and how these climate scientists are just you know they made this thing up so that they could get more government grants because they're so greedy. The oil executives are not greedy. Right? The oil industry would never lie to us. They certainly would never lie to Jim Inhofe. They would never allow him to make a fool of himself by writing a book based on lies. Right? Well, this is what Jim Inhofe apparently believes. And in fact, in his book, he talks about how, you know, God said in Genesis, you know, I'm creating this world. It's for you. As long as it's around, you're around. And he says, God's still on his throne. You know, things are going to be fine. Don't worry. Be happy. 
pump that oil, let the Koch brothers make more money. Right. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Tim. I'm in Hyattsville, Maryland, inside the Beltway. We've got to get together for a beer one of these days. In any event, uh, I've called before. I'm not an atheist. I've often called on religious issues. I'm a little behind with you right now because I've been well, busy with other stuff. But in any event, I really appreciate appreciate your show in which you talked about that uh, uh, Bill Maher's um, uh, exchange with Ben Affleck. A lot of my lefty friends think I'm out off the wall by saying this, but I think Marr was way out of line, especially because, if you recall, not only is he an atheist, and that's okay, I keep that in context, but he also defends just about anything Israel does. So Islam is evil, and, and uh, Israel can do anything, and it's justified. But uh, anyway, I appreciate that. A couple other little issues related to it. I don't know of the other fella that, that you were referring to, Riza something or another, who spoke with Jenk, etc., I guess. But uh, he referred to genital mutilation. FYI, I was talking with Muslim clergy about that a number of years ago, and they told me especially the clitorectomy is a pre-Muslim uh, uh, practice. It was a cultural thing. It had nothing to do with Islam. So that's an item you might consider in that discussion. Finally, David Pakman was talking about atheism and agnostics. I really don't consider them the same. I'm uh, uh, the school of thought of, uh, of uh, Bertrand Russell, who years ago said he's not an atheist because atheism is the religion of the atheist. I've always said before, I'm not sure if I call myself an agnostic, but I'm not really an atheist either. In any event, I really appreciate the show. Keep it up. I wish I could afford being a member, but I can't at this point. I still listen to you uh, very, very frequently. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay, my name is Nick. I'm an Army Sergeant here in Kansas, and uh, I just wanted to give you a little insight into what you were talking about with the, the Muslim thing. I, not proudly, have to spend a lot of my time knocking back coworkers and other people saying horribly xenophobic stuff on social media and public about Muslims, Islam, all of that. Yet, even though I'm always the one who's doing it and getting called names by idiot coworkers who think that I'm you know, apologist or whatever, I tend to think that there's nothing really too wrong with what Sam Harris and Bill Maher are saying. It sort of reminds me of if religion were international football, soccer, you would have different factions of religion, just like you have different factions of football, Italians, Germans, English, Americans. And just because the Italians have a group of people in their country called the Ultras who tend to fight more and with sharper weapons at games, even though there's factions in every in every football country that fight English, you know, every 16 to 40 year old dude has gotten into a fight. But Italy tends to have some of the more violent stabbers and some of the more violent fighters. I don't know why it's wrong to, to point that out. And, and even though they say over and over again, we're not talking about all Muslims, nobody seems to hear that part and then just tells them that they're painting with a broad brush. So it's a little weird to me, and uh, I don't know. Uh, tell me what you think. Hi, Jay. This is Bassi uh, from New York City, um, calling in reference to your latest episode, 874. 
debating the structures of extremism religion. Great, great episode, man. I think uh, I think you really struck the right tone with this one, and I think I think you did a very important job in calling out uh, the likes of Marr and Harris, which are very powerful media personalities. And I think one of the more important things that might have come out of this episode is to explore some of our own bigotries here in, in the left. Um, you know, we're not uh, we're not perfect. We have our own uh, our own viewpoints. We are certainly bigoted in many respects, and especially when it comes to things that we have our own agendas on. You know. Um, I think you look at a guy like Maher, you look at a guy like Harris, and, you know, what comes to, to mind is, you know, that recent uh, video, that meme that was going around, where you had um, the woman being catcalled all over the city, and, you know, you dig into it a little bit, and you realize the guy who produced the video is this proponent of gentrification, and he goes and edits out all of the white men that were uh, engaging in catcalling as well. So, you know, to those that are saying, well, you know, we have to have this discussion, we have to be able to be open and honest, yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, we also have to be honest about why we're having the discussion and what's the reason for exploring this, you know? I mean, you look at the catcalling video, you know, why all of a sudden are we passing this video around millions of times when this is something that has been, you know, on our radars for a while now. And you do a little bit of digging and you find out that, okay, well, this guy has an agenda, you know. You look at Harris, you look at Marr, um, I think they have an agenda as well. You know, kind of the same goes for your buddy over there at the David Pakman show. Right? I don't know how frequently you listen to his broadcast, but, you know, when it comes to the issue of, you know, Israel and Palestine, and the guy's incredibly biased. He's incredibly, incredibly biased, and, and um, you know, I, I certainly think that they have something to push here. So, you know, whatever, that's, uh, that's not too sense, and, and I don't think that we should be afraid to, to point out our own bigotries and our, our own faults, and um, I think, uh, and I hope this, this you know, encourages a healthy debate. All right, man. Take care. And, of course, uh, keep up your good work. Hey, Jay. This is uh, Greg from Baldwin Park, California. I just finished listening to the episode about uh, the Bill Maher, Sam Harris, uh, Ben Affleck uh, show. And I have to say, honestly, I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm frustrated because in every clip that you played from the various shows, especially the Young Turks, but even your ending, I felt, uh, failed to properly characterize um, the position that Bill Maher and Harris are coming from. Now, this frustrates me because I always felt that, you know, what defined the left as being different from the right is that the left was about intellectually honest discourse. You know, people of the left are supposed to be willing to admit when they're wrong and be flexible of mind. But the uh, response from the left to Sam Harris has been as dogmatic, uh, dishonest as the best of what Fox produces. I really, you know, I'll, I'll give the show the benefit of the doubt in the sense that I, it doesn't seem like you've really read his, his uh, Sam Harris's books or his work. I would highly recommend it. 
Uh, keep in mind as far as the topic of how beliefs affect actions, um, you may not be aware that he is in fact a, neuro, uh, a neuroscientist from Harvard. Um, he's done extensive research on, how, you know, in the science of beliefs and how they affect actions. So, um, compared to everyone who's, who's put him down, in all honesty, the man is, you know, far more credentialed and know, knows more about what the topic than the rest of us do. So I'm going to take his word. <laughs> and other scientists too. This is something I, I research myself. But anyways, um, just want to throw that in. It, it is possible to attack ideas and not the people who hold the ideas. And lastly, um, as far as the uh, repercussions of what he is saying as far as it affecting policy, he actually answered that question on Bill Maher's show. He said that what we need to do is we need to prop up and support the moderate Muslims like Malala and help them in their efforts to reshape global Islam. So he did answer that, and I was dismayed to see uh, liberal, left-leaning news sources not mention that and to continue to say otherwise about him. Very disappointed in the left. I just wanted to give him my two cents because this show has pissed me off. <laughs> otherwise, good job. <laughs> Thanks much. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So uh, please keep those uh, calls coming in on the extremism episode. Uh, I, I played you know, almost 10 minutes of them there. That was only a third of what's come in so far. So uh, way more are coming in than I could possibly play. Uh, so keep the comments coming in, and the best of them will end up on the show, and the best of the rest will end up on an upcoming bonus episode. That's my plan. Uh, so yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. I, I don't feel the need to, to respond at this moment. If you heard something in those comments uh, you want to respond to, please do that. The number again, 202-999-3991. And now I'll, I'll leave you today with uh, one quick thought that you know, I, I thought I was done with the whole discussion of uh, what was wrong with my voice, uh, th- but I have one more message to play for you because, uh, to recap, one listener complained a few weeks ago that I yodel when I speak, which I found so amusing that uh, I withheld that information from everyone else. I asked everyone to guess to see if they could figure out what the complaint was. Um, you know, I thought the people came through beautifully during the contest, which had no prizes. Uh, everyone was very polite. Some wrote in with guesses, even while being concerned that either they would offend me with their guess, or that at the very least I had opened myself up to a barrage of mean messages and criticisms. But what they didn't know is that I only opened myself up to comments like that because I was really confident that you know, I knew my listeners well enough to know that I didn't really have to worry about stuff like that. You know, and I was right. I've been doing the show for almost nine years, and I know the vast majority of my listeners are great, thoughtful, kind people who, you know, would never send in, you know, intentionally mean messages, and that only a really small minority are the type who would even consider writing in with a, you know, mean-spirited comment. And to prove me right about the existence of that minority, I heard from Mike. Hello, this is Mike from Nova Scotia. About your speech, uh, I think you have what I call the pity 
the pity stance. Like you say, you always seem to be saying, Ah, 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 Thank you. So I'd say that for every, you know, couple dozen perfectly lovely, polite listeners, there's about one mic out there. And frankly, that is a ratio that I will take and run with and call that a big, big win. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from Best of the Left, Best of the Left, Best of the Left, Left, dot com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past